let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you calling <laughs> Welcome. We're here to talk about the confluence of sustaining open source. How do we make sure that open source is a awesome place to be around for everyone involved and the planet, all the things, not only just the planet, but also the maintainers, blah, blah, blah. And design. How do we get designers into open source? How do we have design and open source meet together? How do we get designers to talk to open source people, but also be open source people? What does that mean? Pretty loose topic, but very excited to get into this podcast again today. We have one panelist besides me. Again, I'm Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. We have Errol Fox joining us today. Errol, how are you doing? Good. I've had a busy day today, but I am ready to talk about sustaining design in open source software with our lovely guest. So am I. I wish I had a busy day, but I'm now back on this side of the ocean. And so it is only 10 a.m. for me but still very exciting. Our guest today, because I should stop talking, is Aditya Patel. Aditya Patel is the Director of Product at Hot Wax Commerce. Very excited to have him on. He does a lot of stuff with designers. He is a designer himself, but as Director of Product, he also does a lot of stuff that just touches the entire product at Hot Wax Commerce. It is one of these really interesting startups, and we're going to talk a bit more about what it is and how it works. Before we get to that, Aditya, how are you doing today? Doing pretty great. Thank you for asking. Cool. Thank you for coming on this podcast. It's great to have you on again. The first time the internet was a bit iffy, so this is the second time we're recording it, uh, which is why I knew a bit about Hot Wax already. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. That's actually fake bamboo. Uh, No, that's Ikea. Okay, Aditya. Well, I find some wood in my house. What do you do? Tell us how you ended up at Hot Wax Commerce and uh, why you're here. Okay. So the way I got to Hot Wax Commerce is not all that exciting, I guess. It's mostly just was working on some projects. It was interesting to them. I started working with them and now I'm here. What I do at Hot Wax Commerce is diverse as it is for any startup when you're working with a company that's finding itself. So there's a lot of writing content and thought leadership about design and getting that out into the community and within the company itself. A lot of marketing angles, demoing the product to potential customers all the way to like figuring out what the product needs to be. But I'd say it's mostly, you know, it's mostly at this point, what I'm focusing on day to day, at least for the last few weeks, is how specifically the product interacts with the customer. So what the experience should be and how Oftentimes, the default approach of minimalism doesn't actually work, which is a lesson I've learned a little too late is just how minimalism is not always the best thing in professional software and more control is usually what you need to go for and more oversharing information. Speaking of minimalism not being the best thing, what is the product at Hotwex Commerce? What do you do there? So the product is basically for all retailers, and this is more important, especially after the pandemic. So retailers who are selling stuff online, but they also have these stores that have been shut down during the pandemic. So they right. now they need to start 
finding different ways to get product to the customer, which is recently it's been like a lot of click and collect buy online pickup in store. So making sure they're able to do that with what we call in the retail industry an order management system. So its job is effectively to sell or deliver as much product at full price. So it's using inventory from your stores, your warehouse, and shipping it with crazy algorithms to your customers so that you have the least stock left over for your clearance sale at the end of the season. So you're working mainly with other companies. It's a B2B business, which means your design doesn't necessarily have to be entirely customer focused, doesn't have to be necessarily, or at least the designs as a whole, like the color palette doesn't have to cater to people who want to be on Instagram instead. But the product itself has to cater to people who are like, this is something that I need in my business. And this is right. good enough for me to get there. Do you think that's a good encapsulation of the sort of trade-offs you have for design? Well, what's interesting is I find that if you kind of have to have the same mental approach of designing, because your consumer is a consumer, no matter if like they're the end consumer or if they're using it to deliver something else. So I find it hard to differentiate between designing something for an end consumer versus a business. So I haven't really changed the way I think about it and it hasn't really influenced. I guess it's less showy and less colorful if that makes sense. But recently I would say most consumer apps have kind of like zoom on the color too. I think that's fair. I think that my question was actually showing my own ignorance. So thank you for pointing that out to me. What do you consider design? at Hot Wax Commerce? So essentially the way I think about it, I think, which is pretty broad, but I guess it has to be, which is it's effectively, like I kind of said earlier, it's how your consumer or your user fulfills their tasks, like what they want to do. It doesn't, task sounds very transactional, but what they want to do with your piece of software and is it, helping them do that better. So like your design, I feel like it has to like stem from, is it really helping them do this better? And it's not always by dumbing it down. It's like, is this like really what they need? And sometimes it's more complexity, which I keep tying back to like over minimalism, but yeah, effectively is what you've produced. Like you can have two pieces of software that look different, but execute the same task. And one is significantly easier to use. There's not like one way that's always better, but it's scenarios, scenarios. Descriptions of what design does can often end up that way. So I can completely sympathize. Like sometimes we, in our efforts to explain truly what design does, which is a lot of things, we can turn ourselves in circles. So I completely sympathize with that. But it's also, you know, interesting for folks to hear different ways of explaining what the goals of design are within different contexts. So thank you. And sometimes it is not as uh, clear and <laughs> easily explainable as we, we would want it to be. But one of the things that I was listening to you talk about is making things work for people that use the tool, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm always curious to know how different organizations, different designers within different kinds of structures especially open source structures, find out those things that need to be improved and test and understand like how we are measure, how we are making them better. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you do that where you are. 
It is definitely, that's a great like thing to point out because it's an interesting challenge is like you can often like get lost in, oh, this is like what it should be and in open source where there's not always a direct feedback because oftentimes people just kind of take your stuff and go. So it's a good question because, I mean, if I understand your question correctly, you're asking how do you understand if you're delivering on your consumer's need without any feedback, right? Yeah. Or do you have a process where you collect that feedback? Is it traditional, quote unquote, traditional user research methods, but just within an open source kind of context? Or do you do anything differently? Like, how do you do it where you you are? Well, lucky for us, basically, we keep our work in open source, but we also deliver our work to businesses. And the good thing about B2B software, which is, I guess, different from and consumer stuff is there's a KPI tied to what you sold to this person is like, if this goes in and doesn't like increase revenue by certain percentages, you know, you've done something wrong. And oftentimes in these like large organizations, there's this thing called change management, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with, but in case the audience isn't, it's just basically the incredibly underrated work of getting this entire machine moved from like a certain way of doing things to like a whole other way of doing it. I had some visual components there for the audio listeners, but yeah. So if that process, like how smooth can we make that process is one of the performance indicators, like how hard is like this thing to learn? And the second is are people after learning to use it, are they actually delivering on the KPIs that we expect them to in any capacity? And if they're not, that's an indication that we're probably not doing this the best way possible, because if our stuff operates to its highest capability, then people should be able to do more faster. And if they're not doing more than they were before, then we failed somewhere. And then we go in and rethink like, all right, where are people like, and that often ties into where change management falls apart too, is if people are having a hard time getting a grasp on how certain things work, That doesn't end when change management ends seven days after deploying something that sticks with them. And if something's not coming through, it's probably also something that showed up or was a pain during change management. So that's kind of like how I personally see or how I kind of understand what's working, what's not working. Love to hear that. It's a very, it's very familiar to me because it actually Mm -hmm. is processes that I have used in non-open source settings. And I think that what you talk about raises something very interesting for me that I don't know what your thoughts are on, but you did touch on it briefly, but you said sometimes within open source, you don't know who has used it, how they've used it. They can pick it up and change it in ways that if you can monitor that, amazing. Like you could learn loads of different stuff from it. But I know some of the places that I've worked as a designer in open source, there was this real sense of the unknown of whether people were just understanding how people were taking the open source like code and what they were actually doing to change and adapt it. Because there actually was very few for us back in the organizations that I worked in, there was very few ways that we could track essentially who was doing that, how they were doing that. And the, the kinds of things that we would hear back were largely just this doesn't work and we would never quite find out why to be able to improve it. So yeah, it's great to hear that there is a process there, but yeah, I'm wondering what you think about this thing that you touched on briefly about. Sometimes you might not ever know 
who is using your open source and in what ways. And I wonder if you have ideas on how that could be improved. One way, which is probably not what you're asking about, but something that there's this community that I'm working with and they've did this thing, which is what's essentially they have this UI framework, right? And so they took piece of code from it. And there's this website that you can just like insert that piece of code and it tells you all the websites that are using it. So they did that. And so they just found a hacky way to like, just, all right, here's a list of everything. So now we can like see what people are doing with our code. They don't have to, they're not obligated to tell them, but that's a way of getting to that. But I think you were trying to ask a more deep and like psychological question here, which is like, what do you do about that? And honestly, I'm not really sure. I don't have something Like, I don't have something to really say to that, but if you have like thoughts on that, something that I would love to hear and actually understand for myself better. Yeah, I think it's a conversation that we could have more, I think, in the open Mm -hmm. source spaces. I think that there is the culture and we're moving maybe a little bit into like cultural questions here and apologies to listeners. I think that I often ask a lot of open source cultural questions because I am deeply interested in not just like how we do open source in a practical lines of code kind of way, but how we form open source communities. But yeah, it kind of speaks to part of the open source experience, which is about really like understanding what it means to take a piece of open source and change it in ways and really understand all the differences, all the things that get changed to meet different needs. And yeah, I think that coming back to design, I was just endlessly frustrated as a designer within open source. I was like, I really want to make this better for you. And I really want to design a tool that's better and meets your needs. But if I can't see how people are using it, and if I can't understand the ways in which it's being adapted, how could I possibly begin to design something based off of information, which was relevant, like from users? So, you know, like yourself, I don't think I've got any clear answers, but it's definitely a conversation that we could facilitate more. But yeah, there are other things within open source from a cultural perspective that you have noticed design related or product related. Yeah. I just had a thought I just wanted to get out about how do you tell if what you've done is useful without like people specifically coming back to you? And it was essentially it's. Something I picked up from, I was watching this tutorial on like color grading. I do like video production on the side just as a hobby. And there's this tutorial about color grading. And they're like, if you sit there and you color grade something, you're going to get used to it. So the best way to do it is you leave it and you come back the next day and you look at it and you're like, what the hell did I just do? And so similarly with design, especially with Figma and like making design systems in Figma, a big part of designing those and putting that out in open source is what's the user experience of the designer using your design system. A button is insanely configurable, but it's also insanely hard to figure out how to do it. There's no point in doing it. So the user experience at that level and come, so what will happen is like, there's like these two design systems that I'm like juggling between for like back and front end stuff. So back end, I've made this framework and I stepped away from it for a month or two. And then I came back to it. And so when you're fresh on something, all the quirks, you kind of get used to them. And so they don't stand out as quirks or like bad user experience. But when you come back to it two months later, you're like, wow, this is not that easy to use. And then you're like, all right, so here are the problems I'm running into. Here's how to fix them. So that's just a way to, without feedback, you can kind of give yourself feedback by becoming a third person, by stepping away from it for a while. Sounds very familiar and sounds very much like a heuristic analysis. I don't know if folks here and also folks listening know about 
heuristic analysis is, but it's something that I recommend to designers to do on open source projects they want to contribute to. It's essentially a set of heuristics to follow along as something that I've not really realized to do. You could apply the same heuristics at different intervals of time and see whether they still are true. Yeah. Thanks. You've given me something to write on my regular sort of to-do list of how to make my design better, which is very cool. Thank you. I'm glad I did that. But how do you spell that? Because I've never heard of that. And it sounds really interesting. It's something that I want to research. So heuristic analysis is, I am terrible spelling it. So I've just uh, written it out. H-E-U? H-E-U-I-R-I-S-T-I-C. Excellent. Heuristic. And the one on the Nielsen-Norman group is the one that I typically use, the usability, the 10 usability heuristics. I was just looking at that. Looks great. Nielsen-Norman group. All right, I'm going to take a look at those two. To be fair, I was looking at it because you mentioned it. So I'm like Googling, what is heuristic analysis? I don't know what this is. And thank you for sharing that. I just got back from a three-week it was supposed to be a workcation. I'm not sure I was enough of a workcation to not just be a vacation. But what's interesting about it is a lot of things bubbled up where it's like, oh, we should fix that process because I stepped away. But to me, you know, that was a heuristic analysis on my own life, but also on some of the things we do here at Sustain, how we, you know, schedule things, how things go on. So this is applicable in a lot of different ways, the mm-hmm. step away process. One of the things you mentioned, Aditya, was Figma. Now, you're a longtime member of the Figma community. You have written a UI framework that's part of a UI kit, right? That you've put into Figma. Uh, Can you explain a bit more how that works? Yeah. So I did not do this hard or smart part of actually coming up with what it's supposed to be. Basically, there's two design systems that I put to Figma as kind of like a backwards process. Usually you start with, oh, what's the message we're trying to convey that you like make the UI framework come up with the branding, but basically there's Ionic for app development. I'm not going to get into details. Basically it has a UI framework of its own, but it's only in code. There's nothing for designers so that they can design an Ionic app and hand it over to a developer that the developer can then look at and be like, oh, these are these Ionic components. Like nothing like that exists. So it was something that like I constantly ran into by using like the material design system. And it was like, people would look at it and be like, what's this? What is this supposed to be? Like, what's, what is that? So I was like, all right, let me just make this. And so I made that, put it out there for the community. And every now and then I tried to like kind of help the community by just putting it out there on Twitter. I'm going to, and just, Hey, here's what you can do and make your life not like terrible. So that's one of them. So again, they made the whole UI framework and I just reverse engineered it to a Figma design system. And then the second one that I have out there in the community is there's this design system. Similarly, they have a whole UI framework and it's dedicated to e-commerce basically. And it's, I don't know if you guys work in like the e-commerce space, but there's this thing called View Storefront. Possibly you guys haven't heard of it, but they have a UI framework. Essentially, View Storefront is this community that makes, there's this whole trend about like PWAs instead of traditional e-commerce. So they make a PWA that integrates with a lot of stuff. They have a UI framework that's dedicated to e-commerce. The idea is that boilerplate design systems are boilerplate. So they don't have e-commerce specific components like a product card with a nice image of your product and like your size and stuff like that. So they have a dedicated UI framework for it. We use it also for some of the services that we provide, which is like for like buy online pickup and stores. Like if you want a website with that, So for designing that, they had a version of it themselves, but it was like a style guide 
that was meant to be used by developers of like, oh, this is my color palette. This is like what a button looks like. But as a designer, it wasn't components that were extendable in design or there's a lot of stuff you can like, you can go crazy with Figma design systems. And a lot of it is efficiency and like how a lot of stuff translates to developers. Like there was component naming differences. So figuring that out, having CSS variables, labeled documentation, stuff like that. So again, they made the whole design system and they have all the code for it. And I just came backwards from there. And as a designer who was handing off stuff to developers, I was like, all right, so now I need a design system because I can't keep like doing this manually. And so that's how that was born. And now both of them are in the Figma community as basically free for anybody to use if they want to. And so far it looks like people have been to some capacity. So this is like such music to my ears because this is what I, and you used the word just, I just did this, but like, I just re I also just want to focus on how monumentally important this work is that you've done. So it's no trivial task to have constructed these resources for designers to be able to engage with open source. Right. So that's essentially what you've done is for some designers, this is, they're going to be their first sort of step into the world of open source through using these UI frameworks within a familiar setting. And it's something that I did in a project as well, because what, what you've allowed to happen is designers to participate in open source where there are so many barriers to designers like participating if they don't kind of almost, you know, jump in with two feet full into the, the culture and all of the intricacies around like licenses and all the things that aren't necessarily interesting to designers. Mm -hmm. Sorry, not sorry. But it's just those, <laughs> those kinds That's of things bad. just aren't the ways to get designers engaged. And what I think that your example shows is that it is very reasonable and very achievable all open source projects to construct maybe as the first thing that they ask designers to do what you've done. But I would love to actually hear some of the detail about maybe how long it took you to do these things, some of the conversations that you had around like with your team about actually doing this work and implementing it and using it, because I actually think those details are going to be so, so useful and so, so crucial for these open source organizations to really understand how beneficial doing this themselves would be. Yeah. So what does it take? I gave myself a reverse head start because now in the Figma community, there's a lot of great like starter design kits where it's, oh, here's like your buttons and stuff already made. You don't have to like figure out like how auto layout works and like build that stuff from scratch. But when I started, it was basically the need comes from and like the problem it solves, which is more, which is important. And that's what drives this entire effort, which is like when I was like, when we start first picked up like this open source theme that used to open us created and we're like, all right, we need to like customize this now. And there's like, first you have to like make a design for it to be implemented. But the problem is without like a real design system you run into this issue of like, all right, so like, here's something I changed. And as a designer, I don't know all the rules because they're written in code. And as a designer, that's like a whole other thing to get into is like hunt down, like what all like the padding and stuff is and like all that stuff, like the media queries and all that. So it's not like a one-way blame of like the developers don't get it. It's like, as a designer, if you don't have that framework built out in the tool that you're using, you start developing designs that don't adhere to the design system and the, you lose the benefits of the design system. And 
essentially without that and thinking what we were running into is we would like, I would whip up these designs like, okay, well, we need this. And like, in my mind, it's like super simple because like, I haven't made anything new. I just copy pasted like old components. But then as a developer to get that working, you just write a new class on this component that doesn't need it because you actually wanted to do was like utilize this part of a framework. And so you end up writing like this endless cycle of technical debt of code and that's like the real thing that we were hunting to like figure out is like, we have to stop this. Like, what's the point of a framework if we're not utilizing the framework? So the first step to utilizing it was myself as a designer part, like holding the designing responsibility and then extending that to the implementation. But like as first starting with the design is like, you have to understand what the limits of the design system are, what the limit of the code is, and make sure that's reflected in your Figma system that you created. Once that's reflected and you're using like the same design tokens, like the spacers, the shadows, the everything, you end up with something that's very easily codable and translatable to developers. And all of a sudden, all of that extra CSS jargon drops away and a lot of testing drops away and a lot of development speed comes into view. That's like the main reason we did this, uh, both Ionic and Vue Storefront. Because we'd run into the same issue. Oh, like you hand off a developer and a list item that looks slightly different than what Ionic does. And as like a project manager or some like a client is like, it's not pixel perfect. So to make it pixel perfect, you end up going into like the code of Ionic and you're overwriting these CSS classes versus if you had just made an Ionic design to begin with, the entire acceptance happens where everybody's on the same page, not just the designer and the client. That's basically what you end up with. So what goes into it is it's pretty tedious now that I think about it. It's a lot of staying up till 3 a.m. and like hitting these like timelines of like, all right, now, like if I need to make this, it's like da, 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 music in. But essentially you go in from scratch and you write all of these things. You create these components. I don't know. It's hard to describe what goes into it. There's a lot of great videos out there about how to make these design systems. I've tried to create videos on how to use these design systems that I've created and post them on YouTube because I understand that like jumping into a design system isn't that easy. But yeah, it's just a lot of like understanding, especially when you're working backwards. It's like looking at what the component is, how it works right now, and then figuring out that like the worst part, all right, this is something that you guys are probably going to relate to if, if you guys are in the thing with design world is like, the responsive part of the design where it's, oh, if I drag this out, does the component expand the way it should? Like that is a nightmare, like, holy crap. But yeah, that's probably the hardest part. And like, once that's figured out, which a lot of it is now because the community is so much more mature, it's just a lot of repetitive work after that. But yeah, just really organizing your components, making sure you've organized it. I like to do it in like an atomic structure. So once you've got like your atoms figured out, you've got your molecules figured out and you start building out your organisms, and then the real magic or the real bliss happens is like you put two atoms together and your molecule comes together with auto layout and it's just like a dream come true. And then like you put two molecules together and it's just like an organism that's perfect. And like, that's how it is in the code. And you've just made it happen and you're just happy. Like light, you're just Buddha at that point. So I love that answer mostly because it highlights the amount of work that you do, which is not just doing design stuff, not just talking to clients, but also figuring out how do we build a structure that makes it easier for me to hand this work off to other people. It makes it easier mm -hmm. for people on my team to get it to the scratch and also people in the community to help us out and bootstrap. So this is very like design level thinking as opposed to design as pixels. 
it's much more, no, design is the entire structure of how we get to the pixels and how we make sure that they work very well. So I like that. And it's interesting to me that you are an anti-minimalist because bringing it down to the atoms seems to be a minimalist approach. How do we figure out from the basics what we need, then go from there? Obviously, things get more complex as time goes on, but it seems to me like that's like the heart of minimalism. So just a small retort there from a minimalist. Don't look at all the stuff in my apartment. I still call myself one. I just like books. So what is the balance that you have to thread there? And I'm quoting one of the things from the prep sheet that you wrote directly. What is the balance between creating innovative designs and managing implementation challenges within this framework? How do you balance that? This is something that like, I actually started thinking about because of... Did you guys ever hop on Clubhouse? Um, Good Lord, no. Why would I do that? That sounds awful. So in that, somebody was talking about, oh, design systems kill creativity because you're just working with Legos at this point and you're not like thinking about it. And it's just, you've lost the art. And I like, you had this existential moment because I, till that point, I was like, oh, I figured it out. I don't have to work hard anymore. And like stuff happens. But that's when I started thinking is like, maybe I, because it's easy, I've stopped like questioning if this is like the best way to do something. And so that kind of brought me back to like, that's where like the innovative design came in where it's like, there's sometimes there's like creative ways to solve challenges. Now that I'm in both boats now, like coming from the designer side to like now, like both feet and like development and design, it's like, I can't like make my left foot happy and have my right foot be shot because my development is hell because I came up with this crazy design that makes no sense. And there's no amount of JavaScript in the world that's going to get it implemented. Just finding that balance is just, I've been trying to do it more and more where it's like trying to move away from the boring designs. I feel like I'd kind of rested into, but again, it's just kind of like managing both sides. I want to make sure that I'm like doing as much as I can, but by being more innovative, you're kind of like compromising how much you're doing because you're doing it in different ways. Every time you're like rethinking, Oh, maybe I can just do it in like this whole other way. So you take it like one step at a time. It's like you do like a small 5% innovation. You figure it out. So now you have that in your tool belt. Then you do another 5% of innovation in design. Now that's And you eventually get to like better innovation. You figure out how to do more and more innovation in your design because it's, oh, now I figured out like how all of this can be implemented without like staying up and writing code for like way too long and it not making sense. Yeah, I guess so. Baby steps. It's almost like we share a brain, honestly. Like I cannot agree more with basically everything that you've said, which is super cool. Because what you're describing here is an approach, I think, an approach to design, which is much more aligned to open source. So open source by its nature is collaborative and slow in a good way, I think. You know, it can move quite fast at, at different times, but the old way of maybe doing design or one of the ways that people can still do design is this sort of, to quote a previous episode, is this sort of where you create a design and then you throw it over the fence to the developers and never the fence should be broken down between the designers and the developers so that they can co-create together and in a way that is effective for both of them and, and saves time and innovates in a, in a way which is paced for the optimal sort of kind of working conditions, essentially. And I really struggle with people, designers specifically, that say that they, you can't innovate or you can't be creative within an existing system. Because to me, that is, well, you know, constraints are 
the fuel for innovation. It's like, what am I able to do with this? But what other things might I need to create based off of what criteria rather than, you know, this kind of blank canvas approach? It's something that you've mentioned briefly in our document about designs out there on Behance and Dribble that don't really functionally make sense. They have like dead end workflows. And I think that these two things tie in together. And I think the design world personally would be benefit from a more of this 5% approach that you say. But yeah, if you want to expand on like how these two things interlink, I would love to hear. We know what's funny is like the first thought I have is like the exact opposite of what I wrote, which is like, these people out there making designs that don't actually do anything are probably like the inspiration inside of like when you're thinking within the system, maybe they're the thing that like bring you at what, show you what's outside of the box. So I've just completely killed my own argument, but let me try and come back at it from the other side. I think it would be interesting if there were more people out there that were using that, like all of these dribble and behance designs, if they were more like, oh, I use this design system and use it in a way that you'd never thought of. And it's just, oh, wow, dude, I should totally do that. And all of a sudden it's innovative and you can directly apply it to what you're doing. And it's not just, here's how to add waves to like the background of your app. It's like, all right, what am I going to do with that? Here's how skeuomorphic design looks. And it's, oh, boom, now all of my apps have no contrast and nobody understands what's clickable and what's not. Is it skeuomorphic or neumorphic? Well, what is the I actually just, I just Googled skeuomorphic, which is not the word at all. It's S-K-E-U. Skeuomorphic. Okay. Yeah. But, and I think that's the one where it imitates real life and neumorphic or whatever it's called is new, is the one where it's like light and shadow. I think what you've described is a really tricky problem. It's a design culture problem, potentially, where wouldn't it be beautiful if we celebrated designers using systems and using frameworks, like you said, I used this framework to create this thing. And this is the way that I created this in this. And I feel like design culture celebrates sometimes the far creative things more than it does the systems approach. And, you know, there is a, yeah, maybe a sense of shame that designers have when they use like an out of the box thing. It's, oh, am I not being the best designer that I can be if I use something that, you know, has a framework or things like that. And design culture can be insidious in, in that way. So it's a hard problem to try and solve, but I would love if what you said happened more. Well, I just love this podcast because everything I say, Ariel just makes it sound like I've just said the most profound thing ever. And it just makes me feel so good. You have very good the most <laughs> you, You're both good. You, <laughs> you've said some incredibly profound things, but in a much more practical way. I like, I'm, I'm a very much a, I'm a bit of a dreamer when I think about these kinds of things, but the balance that you bring is much more like, this is how things could be. This is how things should be. This is the way in which this could be done, which is, I think, fantastic. Yes, that's a really great point to wrap it up. Aditya, where can people who listen to this podcast follow you? Where can they hear about your words of wisdom? Where are you on the interwebs? Well, if you're a designer and interested in like the design system angle of all this, I'd say my Twitter, which it's at Hey Aditya Patel. So H-E-Y and then just my name. 
So that's like for all the design thinking part of it. And then if you want to understand how design connects to like business, that's like LinkedIn, all of the posts there are, how do you add good design to like enterprise and like traditionally boring workflows? And those will both be in the show notes. Aditya, thank you so much for coming on. Before you go, and before we say thank you once more, I want to get to the spotlight part of the episode. Spotlight is where we highlight projects, people, things, anything, whatever, that we feel like just needs light shed on. And this is the fun part that doesn't necessarily have to relate to what we had before, but often does. Because we are the hosts, we will go first. Errol, what's your spotlight? So my spotlight for this episode is the vermontcomplexsystems.org. So that's the URL, but the website will take you to something called the Ocean Awards Program. And I really recommend that people check this out. It's a lot of money, essentially grant money that you can apply for to do research around open source networks, communities and different things. So they have their open call for grants open, I think, until November of this year, 2021. But also I participated in a workshop that somebody was leading from that organization recently, where we talked a lot about the less paid or the unpaid labor within open source. So we talked a lot about what it takes to actually organize open source events and open source meetups and open source communities. And why are these aspects of open source less supported and less funded than, than perhaps the coding aspects of things? So I really recommend that you check out the papers, the research and the opportunities that they have there. I second that immensely. Amazing people working there, an amazing group, weirdly right up the road. So very excited about that spotlight. My spotlight today is Talisk. T-A-L-I-S-K, kind of like Talisker Whiskey, which is a bit peaty, but quite nice. Talisk is an amazing band from Scotland. It is a trio. They play fantastic folk music. I listen to it all of the time. Just listened to it a lot recently. And just think everyone should listen to folk music all the time forever. So Talisk. I'm going to go with Storefront UI, which I mentioned earlier in the episode. I think it's one of the more useful design systems out there, there's, I'm not to say that there's like bad design. I'm not trying to call anyone out, but storefront UI, I think is a great open source design system. If you're putting together like e-commerce, which is like traditionally very finicky and customers are everywhere all over you about like, this doesn't look like this and all that, that. So I think this is something that like is out there for people to use on, doesn't have to be with their framework. You can use it anywhere. And I think it'll really just help people like, developers of this world and designers of this world understand each other better and also deliver stuff much more easily. I'm also a contributor there. So I do a lot of work with them about like just sharing their work and just helping people use it and find use out of it if they can. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's a great spotlight. And that's the end of the show, folks. If you're interested in learning more about sustained open source design, you can always come along to our I think monthly or perhaps bi-weekly meetings where we talk about cool stuff like this. You can also go to discourse.org or you could just ping people on this podcast like me or Errol. We'd be happy to talk more about design and I'm sure Aditya would too. Again, his Twitter is hey Aditya, A-D-I-T-Y-A. Uh, and that's hey, H-E-Y, not H-A-Y. That's the horse account, very different. Aditya, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. And that was a great pun. What do you, that was a great Aditya, thank you so much. Job. Thank you. We hope that you continue to go out there and make all the design things happen. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.